Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There never was a finer sight when all our boys were fixed to fight on D-Day, 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 D-Day. They'll soon be coming back For now they're on a solid track Since D-Day, 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 D-Day Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. Tomorrow is the 75th anniversary of D-Day and we thought it was appropriate and timely to revisit Lane's story from the 70th anniversary. Today's topic, a father's saga told from overseas. So first, Lane's going to read this story, and we'll talk about how she discovered it. But uh, So sit back, and here's the story. He didn't open the first email. He thought it was spam, some memorabilia about World War II. The subject line said, USCG in Normandy. Kirk Vale is 60, a plumber, like his dad. He knew his dad had been stationed at St. Petersburg's Coast Guard Station and that he'd turned 26 the day his cutter joined the D-Day invasion, 70 years ago today. But that was about it. The second email arrived two days later, on March 11th. This one had an attachment. Picture taken in 1944. Kirk clicked open a back-and-white photo of a young man in a sailor shirt with dark, wavy hair, intense eyes, and a Clark Gable mustache. Kirk had never seen the picture, but right away he recognized his dad. It was crazy seeing an image of him from his time at war, which I knew nothing about, said Kirk. This old Frenchman had kept my dad's photo framed on his wall for 70 years. With the help of the Frenchman and his friend, after three months of research, Kirk has learned about a life he never knew his dad had, about an almost forgotten fleet of little wooden boats with climbing nets and blood-soaked hulls. He figured out why his dad sang French folk songs and why he never ate crabs. Ralph Pershing Vale was born June 6, 1918, on his family's farm in Oklahoma. He dropped out of school in the eighth grade to work during the Depression. When he was 22, he traveled to St. Louis to enlist in the Coast Guard. I don't think he'd ever even been on a boat, Kirk said. It was the fall of 1940. Germany had invaded France a few months earlier, but the war was still far from America. Bombs would not destroy Pearl Harbor for almost a year. According to Ralph Vale's service papers, he was assigned to several ships before he was sent to the Bayboro Station in St. Petersburg, where he worked on buoy tenders. His dad got hurt on duty and wound up in the old hospital at Mound Park, near what is now Bayfront. There, Kirk said, his father fell in love with his beautiful young nurse, Jane. They married in 1943, after U.S. troops deployed to Britain. She was pregnant by early 1944, when he was sent overseas. Ralph Vale and the other Coast Guardsmen in the Matchbox fleet didn't know where they were headed or what they were about to have to do. The Frenchman was a boy when German soldiers dug bunkers into the field where his family's cows grazed. Andre Craig's parents ran an inn and restaurant in Latrate, a shipbuilding town on the Seine about 37 miles from the coast. 
Andre, now 83, remembers German planes destroying the local electrical plant, and later Allied bombs leveling his neighbor's homes. Forty citizens of Latrate were killed by bombings, wrote Francois Verdier, the friend who translates for Andre. His father had been arrested by Germans and spent time in jail. During the D-Day invasion, Andre was 13. He was scared and excited, he told his friend seven decades later, anxious for the Allies to liberate his town. Latrate was free two months after D-Day, wrote Francois. That's when the Coast Guard moved in. Cutters were assigned to patrol the shores of Normandy and to keep the rivers safe for ships transporting supplies inland to the advancing troops. Kirk's dad's boat docked at a pier a short walk from Andre's parents' inn. It was still the war, but life was quiet, and the Coast Guardsmen had enough time to enjoy life in this part of France, Francois wrote. The 13 sailors were at Andre's home every day. They had beds in the hotel. They ate with the family in the big kitchen of the restaurant, where the table was large enough for 20. They couldn't pay as the parents of Andre would never accept it. They loved the Coast Guardsmen, Francois wrote. Andre's father took the Americans deer hunting. His mother taught the boat's cook to make blanquette de veau, a creamy veal stew. His older brother, who spoke English, took the sailors dancing. They enjoyed cognac a lot, wrote Francois. One time, Andre remembers, Ralph borrowed his father's car to come pick him up from boarding school where he'd gotten into trouble. Another time, Ralph surprised the boy with a picnic after classes. Ralph taught him to play baseball, showed him how to fix the, bo the boat's engines. Andre said, Ralph was the nicest guy I ever met. While the Coast Guardsmen appreciated sleeping in real beds, the boy loved sleeping aboard their boat even more. During the night sometimes, he was authorized to operate the headlight, Francois wrote. In 1945, when the war was over and the Coast Guard crew returned home, Andre was devastated. Ralph gave him a baseball glove and bat, and some photos of the American sailors with their French family. Andre framed his favorite and hung it on his bedroom wall. These are the happy memories of his youth, wrote Francois. They saved his life. They protected him. They brought back freedom and happiness. Andre went on to raise a family and run a debris removal company in Latrate. He moved that Coast Guard photo with him to his office, where it still hangs. Several months ago, his friend Francois, a World War II buff, asked him about the photo. Andre told him about Ralph, and they decided to track him down. Ralph died of liver cancer in 1980 at age 61. But Kirk's plumbing website mentions that his dad was in the Coast Guard during the war. That's how the Frenchman found him, Googling. He started sending Kirk photos of his dad and his crew, of them on board their cutter, posing in their dress blues, of them smiling with French girls, of them in front of the inn, their arms around Andre and his parents. It must have been nice after all that horror to be taken in by a family that appreciated you, said Kirk. It must have felt so good to be with kids who treated you like heroes. The most valuable photo showed the 83-foot cutter with a skull and crossbones painted on the side and a number, six. Armed with that, Kirk began to trace his dad's duties on D-Day. A few weeks before the invasion, Coast Guard historians said, Britain's Prime Minister Winston Churchill told President Franklin Delano Roosevelt that he wished the Allies had a dedicated rescue force to pull injured soldiers from the English Channel. But we do, the Coast Guard website says Roosevelt said. The Coast Guard. Coast Guardsmen like Kirk's dad had been patrolling the American shore for years, tending signals, clearing channels, searching for submarines. In early 1944, said Coast Guard historian Scott Price, 60 cutters from along the East Coast were assembled to form a fleet of floating ambulances. Workers removed their depth charges, 
affixed scramble nets to the sides, and stowed huge first aid kits beneath the bunks. The 840 members of Rescue Flotilla 1 landed in Poole, England, across the channel from Normandy, France, only weeks before the invasion. They trained to tie ropes around themselves and jump into the water and pull the wounded from the waves. Some of the Coast Guardsmen couldn't swim. Few had been trained in medical triage. The cutters were small and fast, able to skirt between landing craft and hospital ships. The wooden boats each carried 1,900 gallons of gasoline, hence the name the Matchbox Fleet. On the eve of the invasion, according to the U.S. Naval Institute, Coast Guard Reserve Lieutenant Raymond M. Rosenblum briefed the men of his flotilla. Quote, We're going to have to be callous. That's going to be the hardest part of our job, he told the men. When we get a load, we're going to have to back away, no matter how many men are in the water. Don't feel sorry for a boy, even if he has a broken leg and is screaming to be pulled aboard. As soon as we've unloaded one batch of boys on a larger ship, we'll go right back for another. We were supposed to follow the landing barges and anchor offshore, said Jack Hamlin, 93, of Springfield, Missouri, who served on USCG 23. They told us to stay out of the ship's way and leave the dead bodies behind. At 5.30 a.m., Hamlin remembered, he and the other rescue crews headed out from England in the dark amid a fleet of 7,000 ships. One guy called down from his landing craft, Hey, what are you always doing in those rowboats? Waves swelled to five feet, sweeping over the cutter's decks, chilling the crew. Some men spent the 90-mile trip heaving into bags labeled vomit. As dawn brightened the rough water, sailors saw aircraft massing above. Tracer shells arched overhead. Ships exploded all around. A few miles off the French coast, the flotilla split in half. Thirty boats accompanied American ships to Utah and Omaha beaches. The rest followed British and Canadian craft to beaches named Sword, Juno, and Gold. Ralph's boat was sent to Gold, about 20 miles east of Omaha, with a British escort sloop called HMS Hind. As on other beaches, the sloping shores were littered with mines and submerged obstacles, wooden stakes and metal poles. While 25,000 British soldiers poured ashore, USCG-6 stayed a mile or more at sea, enduring machine gun, mortar, and artillery fire, watching for survivors in the frothy seas. But the Royal Navy officers weren't quite sure how to use the cutters, and that caused some confusion on D-Day, said Price, the Coast Guard historian. An officer aboard Ralph's boat reported, HMS Hind did not know we were supposed to be with her, and we nearly had our boats fired on by the escorts. Crews worked all night jumping into the 48-degree water to haul out soldiers whose ships had sunk and airmen who'd been shot down. The men's waterlogged packs were so heavy it often took two Coast Guardsmen to load each soldier. Most of the wounded had broken legs, split heads, sprained backs, and smashed ankles, said the Coast Guard's website. Many cried out for medication. The cutters were designed to hold 20 men, but during the height of battle, some crammed 140 men aboard. They ferried their patients offshore to hospital ships and came back for more. There's no official record of how many wounded men Kirk's dad and his crew saved. By the end of D-Day, the Cutters had rescued 400 people. The rest of the 10,500 casualties were left. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Floating in the water to be retrieved later or wash ashore and be eaten by crabs. All spring, emails have been flying across the Atlantic, puzzle pieces filling in the past. Kirk and his brother Jan, who lives in San Francisco, now have dozens of photos of their dad during the war. And Andre has answers about what happened to his hero. It's given me a whole new appreciation for what my dad did, said Kirk. Knowing what he held inside all those years makes me sad. Maybe if he'd talked about it, it would have set him free. It's been like opening a 70-year 70, a 70 time capsule and finding our father inside, Jan emailed. Perhaps it was his wartime experiences on D-Day that caused his silence. But these other stories have sounded as if they were, well, as pleasant as wartime stories could be. Every year, Francois said, he and Andre visit the landing beaches and put flowers on the graves of the American soldiers. In the most recent email, May 26th, Francois said he had just returned helping prepare the U.S. National Cemetery near Omaha Beach for President Barack Obama's visit. The men would like to meet one day. Quote, to be able to walk where my father walked during World War II with someone who actually knew him, that would be a lifelong dream, wrote Jan. Andre and Francois suggested a visit in September on the anniversary of Latrate's liberation. They both have restored World War II jeeps they'd like to show the Americans, and they want to take them to the Village Museum to see their dad's baseball glove. So, um, wow, that's just crazy to remember D-Day, isn't it? I mean, man. Um, you want to tell the story of how you got this story? Yeah, so I wasn't looking for a D-Day story, but I think we've talked in other podcasts about how I'm always aware of like holidays or anniversaries or things coming up that we might want to commemorate. So, I live in a very old house with very bad plumbing, and uh, we had called Kirk Vale to come fix our toilet. So he's basically in there, like, super plunging my toilet in my upstairs bathroom. And I said, how's it going? What's going on? That was really my opening line. He goes, oh, my God, I've been getting all these amazing emails about my dad. And that was the start of the story. And I was like, okay, wait, this is in May, or, like, D-Day's next month. Yay! It'll fit the anniversary. <laughs> and he was more than excited to share his story. I, I kind of got into it right when he was still reporting a bit of it. So that right. was nice to be able to kind of see it unraveling as, as he was unraveling it with his brother. So did you end up doing, you said like it, it launched him into doing more research, but then you, you launched into telling the story of the Coast Guard cutters. Had he already looked up a lot of that stuff or do you, you, you kind of, you yeah, did your own reporting? Well, obviously. he kind of turned me on to the Coast People. Guard his, the website that had okay. the history of this. It was like maybe, I don't know, four or five paragraphs about it. And then from that, there were names of all these other people I could call and reach out to to sort of flesh it out. And I, of course, I really wanted to talk to the Frenchman, but I don't speak French and Kirk didn't speak French. So we got Francois involved, which was awesome because he could interpret. He was the one who was most excited about it, right? Who had told this Andre guy in the first place, oh, you should look for this guy. So Francois was a very great mediator, interpreter, and... um most of my conversations with them were on email, which is not how I like to do things normally, but they were really 
responsive. So there was like the message and then he'd have to go ask him and then he'd have to come back and translate it and bring it back to you. Exactly. And then I had to say, okay, dude, I'm on a deadline. Like, <laughs> cause they, they had all the time in the world, you know, this had been 70 years in the making. And I was like, no, I want to do this story for the anniversary. So I hadn't really read, I don't remember reading a lot about the Coast Guard's role in all of this, you know, like, and that was one thing that was struck me because like, I think I mentioned to you, like we did, we did a 70th anniversary story at the pilot when I was there. And I was thinking, God, a D-Day story. Haven't we all read everything there is to read? And then you, but you find somebody who has a connection and it's just like, uh, I don't know. A lot of the times you can be really transported back to this moment and imagine this guy back there. Like, wow. That was part of the appeal for me. I didn't know that piece of the story at all, you know. And I think if Kirk's dad had been stationed in San Diego, it still would have been a story. But because he was right here in St. Petersburg, because everybody who lives in this area knows where that Coast Guard station is, it felt even more personal, you know. I like the universal quality of this story, even though it's it's around D-Day. It has that sort of like, wow, the things you discover about your parents later that they never talked about. And then sometimes... I don't know, years go by, they might not even be around, and suddenly you learn something that they never, never spent any time telling you anything about. It's like, yeah, and he, I don't, I got the feeling he wasn't necessarily really warm and open with his own sons. Right. For, so for them to see huh. him make this relationship with this 13 year old boy and, and impact that kid enough that, what, 70 years later, he still has his picture on his wall? Like, I, I think that was, gave them, Kirk and his brother, a new appreciation sort of for the heart that their 26-year-old dad had that maybe they didn't know him. Oh, that's that. interesting. So, but that was a thread. It's hard to pull. One brother's not here. and But yet that was one of the impressions you got, kind of like that wasn't a, the guy we knew? Yeah, well, just that he he was real closed off and, and quiet about stuff. And this sort of gave them a whole new appreciation for who young dad had been. Right. You know. What was the reaction to this story? Do you remember? Yeah, a lot, a lot of... Uh, People saying exactly what you said. Oh, I didn't know the Coast Guard played a role in D-Day. Yeah. I, d- I had no idea that um, that they were in the midst of this bloody battle and and risking their own lives. You know, I thought it was interesting too that you know that the big ships didn't even know the little ships were supposed to well, be there to help them. And like, I think that's one of the interesting things when you read about D-Day, or I, I'm sure it's true of any war battle, but like how much chaos there is sometimes, and just like things that start happening that you didn't expect to happen and, and some, and then, you know, friendly fire and things that, that just go wrong. You know? And the fact that four months after D-Day, the Americans are still there, yeah. you know, rebuilding that little town in France. What a nice place to end up though. If you right. had to be, <laughs> if you had to be somewhere in the, in the battle, that's not a bad place to be. They had such great details too, you know, remembering they liked cognac and yeah. going out dancing. I, I just, I like the person, you know, I, I usually shy away from war stories because I don't like the distance that a lot of them are told at. And I don't like it being about battles and, and warmongering, but this was such a personal story. What do you mean the distance are told at? Like just war stories to me are, are usually about the battle. They're not right. about the people in the battle. They're about the strategy. They're about the artillery. They're about the casualties. But they're not about the poor dude on the boat mm-hmm. jumping into the freezing water, pulling almost dead bodies onto 140 people on a boat that was meant to hold 20. I mean, I started trying to picture that and thinking, right. you know, these these are pieces of the war that don't get told. You know. So you were trying to catch up with him to find out if he actually ever went back and we don't know we don't know yeah him and his brother were trying to save money to go over there and I, I i tried to reach out to him but i haven't heard back whether they actually ever made it over there or not but i know i did get an email earlier this year that there's like a world war ii museum that wanted to include coast guard stuff so they wanted to reach out to kirk and get copies of smithy's photos to tell that missing piece of their their own story for their museum 
I, th- I think the trick with anniversary stories, like, I mean, this does, like, again, it was something, I, the Coast Guard part of it, I, I, I remember reading about people storming the beach. I remember reading about paratroopers. But this part I hadn't, I hadn't seen. And then also just the, the personal connection. I think that's where it's sort of like, sometimes in newsrooms we talk about anniversary stories and it feels like just drudgery and like we just want to mark the moment with something, anything. And it's like that those kind of stories don't feel worthwhile. But a story like this, which feels like it's, it's, it's personal and it's, and it's making a connection and it is telling you something. And I think a lot of time we look for those survivors. You know, we want the people who were there at D-Day. Right. But I liked the frame tale of this. You know, I like the idea of this grown son figuring out this part of his father. A 60-year-old son. Yeah, that, that he never, ever knew. You know, I, and the, the the lead on it, actually, I wasn't sure what to do about the, the beginning of it, how to open it. And I thought, well, I'll just start when it started for him, you know, getting this email that he almost ignored. And the lead got some shouts on Neiman's storyboard. And I thought, oh, it was such an obvious place to start was when the story started. You know right. what I mean? But the fact that it almost wasn't meant to be, if he just deleted that email, we wouldn't have known any of this. You know? Of course, the story started when the plumber turns to a reporter at the, at the Times and says, <laughs> well, this is you also, know, here's the takeaway. Chat up your plumbers, you know, well, chat up your electricians. Yeah. I get a story from almost every single person who walks in my house. Well, like, and that question, <laughs> like, what's going on? What's, what's happening with you? Yeah. Um, Luckily, he was a chatty plumber. Yeah, it sounds like he was a chatty plumber. And um, what was his takeaway? I mean, like, he, he liked the story, obviously. And he, yeah. He loved the story. And he loved the reaction that the story got, you know. Um, he had so many people. He put on his Facebook. And so he had so many people coming up to him saying they had no idea and thanking him for his dad's service. And it brought him and his brother closer together, he said. You know, oh, wow. Yeah. I guess so. Because they'd have something together. To, yeah. Yeah. How hard was it to get the research on the Coast Guard angle? Not too bad? No, once I got that Coast Guard historian, he was able to help me kind of poke around to the rest of it. You know, I, it, I wanted someone to interview too. I didn't want to just, you know, quote the website. So it's always amazing to me how much is documented, you know, like um, the fact that they, you know, the actual number of cutters, how many, how many people they pulled from the water. The um, temperature of the water, for goodness sake. Yeah. They you, knew that. Yeah. That you could actually like how the, course describe the boats how much how much gallons of gasoline were they carrying um I don't know just the the, speech uh, that guy gave before they all went out there to do that I love that I could have like first person quotes from the day of that was rich right um I don't think we well we do have a 75th anniversary story coming actually I don't know what it is but Paul Guzzo is working on it because Um, I don't my toilet's fine right now (laughs) (laughs) this this year we're all good (laughs) all right Uh, Any other thoughts on this story? No, just what a gift it was at the right time. You know, I mean, I think if you told it to me in July, I might have said, oh, let's do that for next D-Day. But the timing on it was great. It was perfect. So not only was it, yeah, your plumber, but it happened to be the plumber right before D-Day. My toilet broke at just the right time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. If you have a question for Lane about this story and we will put it on the podcast, we'll put a link. um, Or you want to suggest a topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Monica Herndon. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.